There's a lot of talk in the US and other countries at the moment about banning books and book censorship. This is an absolutely ridiculous notion, and this podcast and YouTube channel is 100% against the idea of book banning. It's an insane thing to do. But if your government is preventing you from accessing certain information through geo-blocking or government censorship, Surfshark VPN is here to help. With their No Borders feature, simply choose from one of their 3,200 plus servers and read whatever you please without any governmental interference. Use the link in the description or episode notes to get Surfshark VPN today for as little as $2.30 per month on a two-year plan, and read what you please without any censorship or geo-blocking. Have you ever received a call or text from a number that you don't know saying that a package you ordered hasn't been delivered because they need just a little bit more information from you. You don't remember ordering a package, and then start wondering how this scammer got your number. Well, anytime you go online and accept cookies or buy anything online, websites can keep your data and sell it to data brokers who create a digital ID of you. They can sell this digital ID to the highest bidder, and lo and behold, a bunch of scammers get a ton of information about you that you never agreed to give them. Well, with Ecogni, this is no longer an issue. All you need to do is sign up, and Ecogni will use the GDPR and CCPA and other privacy laws to get these companies to remove your data from their networks, protecting you and your data from scammers and anyone else who wants to use your data against you. Use the link in the description or episode notes and get Ecogni today for $6.49 a month on a one-year plan and protect your data and digital ID. Hello, and welcome to The Essential Reads. My name is Isaac, and my goal is to bring to you a bunch of classic audiobooks in an easy and accessible way. Let's get started on the final chapter of The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Chapter 24. Conclusion. After many days, when time sufficed for the people to arrange their thoughts in reference to the foregoing scene, there was more than one account of what had been witnessed on the scaffold. Most of the spectators testified to having seen, on the breast of the unhappy minister, a scarlet letter, the very semblance of that worn by Hester Prynne, imprinted in the flesh. As regarded to its origin, there were various explanations, all of which must, but necessarily, have been conjectural. Some affirmed that the Reverend Mr. Dimmesdale on the very day when Hester Prynne wore her ignominious badge, had begun a course of penance, which he afterwards, in so many futile methods, followed out by inflicting a hideous torture on himself. Others contended that the stigma had not been produced until a long time subsequent, when old Roger Chillingworth, being a potent necromancer, had caused it to appear through the agency of magic and poisonous drugs. Others, again, and those best able to appreciate the minister's peculiar sensibility and the wondrous operation of his spirit upon the body, whispered their belief that the awful symbol was the effect of the ever-active tooth of remorse, gnawing from the inmost heart outwardly, and at least manifesting heaven's dreadful judgment by the visible presence of the letter. The reader may choose among these theories. We have thrown all the light we could acquire upon the portent, and would gladly, now that it has done its office, erase its deep print out of our own brain, where long meditation has fixed it in very undesirable distinctness. It is singular, nevertheless, that certain persons, who were spectators of the whole scene, and professed never once to have removed their eyes from Reverend Mr. Dimmesdale, denied that there was any mark whatever on his breast, 
more than on the newborn infants. Neither, by their report, had his dying words acknowledged, nor even remotely implied any, the slightest, connection on his part with the guilt for which Hester Prynne had so long worn the scarlet letter. According to these highly respectable witnesses, the minister, conscious that he was dying, conscious also that the reverence of the multitude placed him already among the saints and angels, had desired, by yielding up his breath in the arms of that fallen woman, to express to the world how utterly nugatory is the choices of man's own righteousness. After exhausting life in his efforts for mankind's spiritual good, he had made the manner of his death a parable, in order to impress on his admirers the mighty and mournful lesson that, in the view of infinite purity, we are all sinners alike. It was to teach them that the holiest among them had but attained so far above his fellows as to discern more clearly the mercy which looks down, and repudiate more utterly the phantom of human merit, which would look aspiringly upward. Without disputing a truth so momentous, we must be allowed to consider this version of Mr. Dimmerdale's story as only an instance of that stubborn fidelity with which man's friends, and especially a clergyman, will sometimes uphold his character when proofs, dear as the midday sunshine on the scarlet letter, establish him as a false and sin-stained creature of the dust. The authority which we have chiefly followed, a manuscript of old date, drawn up from the verbal testimony of individuals, some of whom had known Hester Prynne, while others had heard the tale from contemporary witnesses, fully confirms the view taken in the foregoing pages. Among many morals which press upon us from the poor minister's miserable experience, we put only this into a sentence. Be true. Be true. Be true. Show freely to the world, if not your worst, yet some trait whereby the worst may be inferred. Nothing was more remarkable than the change which took place almost immediately after Mr. Dimmerdale's death in the appearance and demeanour of the old man known as Roger Chillingworth. All his strength and energy, all his vital and intellectual force, seemed at once to desert him, insomuch as he positively withered up, shriveled away, and almost vanished from mortal sight, like an uprooted weed that lies wilting in the sun. This unhappy man made the very principle of his life to consist in the pursuit and systematic exercise of revenge. And when, by its completest triumph and consummation, that evil principle was left with no further material to support it, when, in short, there was no more devil's work on earth for him to do, it remained only for the unhumanized mortal to betake himself whither his master would find him tasks enough and pay him his wages duly. But to all these shadowy beings, so long our near acquaintances, as well Roger Chillingworth as his companions, we would fain be merciful. It is a curious subject of observation and inquiry whether hatred and love be not the same thing at bottom. Each, in its utmost development, supposes a high degree of intimacy and heart knowledge. Each renders one individual dependent for the food of his affections and spiritual life upon another. Each leaves the passionate lover, or the no less passionate hater, forlorn and desolate by the withdrawal of his subject. Philosophically considered, therefore, the two passions seem essentially the same, except that one happens to be seen in a celestial radiance, and the other in a dusky and lurid glow. In the spiritual world, the old physician and the minister, mutual victims as they have been, may, unawares, 
have found their earthly stock of hatred and antipathy transmuted into golden love. Leaving this decision apart, we have a matter of business to communicate to the reader. At old Roger Chillingworth's decease, which took place within the year, and by his last will and testament, of which Governor Bellingham and the Reverend Mr. Wilson were executors, he bequeathed a very considerable amount of property, both here and in England, to little Pearl, the daughter of Hester Prynne. So Pearl, the earth child, the demon offspring, as some people of that epoch persisted in considering her, became the richest heiress of her day in New England. Not improbably, this circumstance wrought the very material change in the public estimation, and had the mother and child remained here, little Pearl, at a marriageable period in her life, might have mingled her wild blood with the lineage of the devoutest Puritan among them all. But, in no long time after the physician's death, the wearer of the scarlet letter disappeared, and Pearl, along with her. For many years, though a vague report would now and then find its way across the sea, like a shapeless piece of driftwood tossed ashore with the initials of a name upon it, yet no tiding of them unquestionably authentic were received. The story of the scarlet letter goes into a legend. Its spell, however, was still potent, and kept the scaffold awful where the poor minister had died, and likewise the cottage by the seashore where Hester Prynne had dwelt. Near this latter spot, one afternoon, some children were at play, when they beheld a tall woman in a grey robe approach the cottage door. In all those years, it had never once been opened. But either she unlocked it, or the decaying wood and iron yielded to her hand, or she glided shadow-like through these impediments, and at all events, went in. On the threshold, she turned partly round, for perchance the idea of entering all alone, and all so changed, the home of so intense a former life, was more dreary and desolate than even she could bear. But her hesitation was only for an instant, though long enough to display a scarlet letter on her breast. And Hester Prynne had returned, and had taken up her long forsaken shame. But where was little Pearl? If still alive, she must now be in the flush and bloom of early womanhood. None knew, nor ever learned with the fullness of perfect certainty whether the elf child had gone thus ultimately to a maiden grave, or whether her wild, rich nature had been softened and subdued and made a capable woman of gentle happiness. But through the remainder of Hester's life, there were indications that the recluse of the Scarlet Letter was the object of love and interest with some inhabitant of another land. Letters came with the moral seals on them, though bearings unknown to English heraldry. In the cottage, there were articles of comfort and luxury, such as Hester never cared to use, but which only wealth could have purchased and affection have imagined for her. There were trifles, too. Little ornaments, beautiful tokens of a continual remembrance that must have been wrought by delicate fingers at the impulse of a fond heart. And once, Hester was seen embroidering a baby garment with such lavish richness of gold fancy as would have raised a public tumult had any infant thus apparelled been shown in our sober-hued community. In fine, the gossips of that day believed, and Mr. Surveyor Pugh, who made investigations of centuries later believed, and one of his recent successes in office, moreover, faithfully believes, that Pearl was not only alive, but married, and happy, and mindful of her mother, and that she would most joyfully have entertained that sad and lonely mother at her fireside. 
but there was a more real life for Hester Prynne here, in New England, than in that unknown region where Pearl had found a home. Here had lain her sin, here her sorrow, and here was yet to bear her penitence. She had returned, therefore, and resumed, of her own free will, for not the sternest magistrate of that iron period would have imposed it, resumed the symbol for which we have related so dark a tale. Never afterwards did it quit her bosom, but in the lapse of the toilsome, thoughtful, and self-devoted years that made up Hester's life, the scarlet letter ceased to be a stigma which attracted the world's scorn and bitterness, and became a type of something to be sorrowed over, and looked upon with awe, yet with reverence too. And as Hester Prynne had no selfish ends, nor lived in any measure for her own profit and enjoyment, people brought all their sorrows and perplexities and besought her counsel, as one who had herself gone through a mighty trouble. Women, more especially, in the continually reoccurring trials of wounded, wasted, wronged, misplaced, or erring and sinful passion, or with the dreary burden of a heart unyielded because unvalued and unsought, came to Hester's cottage, demanding why they were so wretched, and what the remedy. Hester comforted and counselled them as best she might. She assured them too of her firm belief that at some brighter period, when the world should have grown ripe for it, in heaven's own time, a new truth would be revealed in order to establish the whole relation between man and woman on a surer ground of mutual happiness. Earlier in life, Hester had vainly imagined that she herself might be the destined prophetess, but had long since recognised the impossibility that any mission of divine and mysterious truth should be confided to a woman stained with sin, bowed down with shame, or even burdened with a lifelong sorrow. The angel and apostle of the coming revelation must be a woman, indeed, but lofty, pure, and beautiful, and wise. Moreover, not through dusky grief, but the ethereal medium of joy, and showing how sacred love should make us happy, by the truest test of a life, successful to such an end. So said Hester Prynne, and glanced her sad eyes downward at the scarlet letter. And, after many, many years, a new grave was delved, near an old and sunken one, in that burial ground beside which King's Chapel had since been built. It was near that old and sunken grave, yet with a space between, as if the dust of two sleepers had no right to mingle. Yet one tombstone served for both, all around there were monuments carved with immoral bearings, and on this simple slab of slate, as the curious investigator may still discern and perplex himself with the purport, there appeared the semblance of an engraved escutcheon. It bore a device, a herald's wandering of which might serve for a motto, and a brief description of our now-concluded legend. So sombre it is, and so reviled, only to be one ever-glowing point of light, gloomier than the shadow. On a field, sable. The letter A. Jewels. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please like, comment, share, all that jazz. And if you really enjoyed, do subscribe, because there's more to come. The next book will be out shortly. And if you're listening on podcast, please leave a review. It really makes my day to read them, and it is the easiest way to get this in front of as many people as possible. Please let me know what you think of the book. I thought it was great. Um, I, yeah, really enjoyed the story. 
but I still do not forgive Nathaniel Hawthorne for spending the first 20% of the book on an introduction that had nothing to do with the story. I'm, I, yeah, I do not forgive him for that. Once again, thank you for listening, and until next time, bye-bye.